A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. 17 years ago, Heather Pratton's life changed forever. She's 80 now, but I have to confess I was pretty nervous meeting her. I'd read about her story and wasn't sure if she'd be okay talking about what had happened again. I needn't have worried. We met in her spotlessly clean home in Essex. She made me a cuppa, we sat down, and she told me how she helped her son commit suicide. I'm Georgina Skull, and you're listening to Regrets of the Dying. I can't explain to you my state of mind at the time. I'd had a few years of him keep saying he wanted to die and trying to find a way. I just felt he can't fail. It's got it's got to end. Nigel was very independent and he loved to draw. You would always get hand-drawn cards for Christmas and your birthday. His flat was always full of friends. It was open door, really. And um, he just loved being around people. But if any girlfriend tried to get too close, he wouldn't have it because he said to me, nobody's going to look after me. I'm not going to let anybody look after me. I don't want to be looked after. Um, He was phoning me a little bit more. And then he said, oh, I'm taking redundancy from work. And I said, oh, it's too soon for that. And he said, "Um, oh, well, things are happening. So I said, what? And he said, oh, nothing, I'm I'm okay." So we just sort of rolled along um, and we just got on with life. But then one day I got a shop-bought card and I knew that he couldn't draw any longer. Nigel had Huntington's a genetic degenerative disease of the brain, a mixture of motor neurone, muscular sclerosis and Parkinson's, with symptoms usually developing between the ages of 30 and 50. It damages certain nerve cells in the brain, and this brain damage gets progressively worse over time, affecting movement, perception, thinking, judgment and behaviour. There is no cure for Huntington's. He was beginning to lose walking. He was having difficulty swallowing. He couldn't put, um, at that point in time, they were videos. He couldn't get his videos in and out to watch. Everything was sort of going. He was having real difficulties. And like a lot of Huntington's people, they get very hot. Their temperature rages out of control. And he hated wearing clothes so that... To have carers come in with a grown man who didn't want to wear clothes, that was not, that was not um, proper. He would leave clothes piled up by his gas fire and I was really frightened there would be a fire. So eventually he went back into hospital. He could no longer use a knife and fork either. And when we went out, 
we would eat with our fingers. We would have lunch. And we did get funny remarks from people about the fact that we both ate with our fingers because I did it the same as him. It was really good because we became really close and he would talk to me about a lot of things in his life. But it always came back to how he would die. And then he said to me, I'm going to stay with my friend for a little while, so don't come and see me. But I kept phoning and one day he picked up the phone and he just said, help me. And when we got there, he'd been trying to starve himself and he was so thin, it was unbelievable. He'd been using vodka to keep himself unconscious and he'd run out and he was too weak to go to the shop himself. When he said help me, he really meant go and get me some more vodka. Um, instead of that, I called an ambulance and he was taken into hospital and he was furious and he said to me, if you ever do anything like that again, I'll never speak to you again. Then it was his birthday and I was going to take him out for the day. I collected him from the hospital and we were going to go down to South End for the day. And he said, no, no, I want to go back to my flat. He said, I like my flat. So, OK. So we went back to his flat and I was saying to him, well, what shall we get to eat then for lunch? And he said, no, 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 it'll be all right. Don't worry about that. So we got back to his flat and I got out his cards and his presents and he said, no, 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 don't worry about that. It's too late. And I said, no, I'm going to get your cards out and I'm going to sing happy birthday to you. So we did that. And then he said, my friends have got me what I wanted. And he came back from the bedroom with a syringe and a packet of pink stuff, which I presumed was heroin. Um, and he said, they've told me what to do. I put it on a spoon with water and heat it up and put it in the syringe. So he did that. But his movements were so bad, really, that he didn't get a lot in the syringe and he couldn't inject himself. He was just trying and it was falling on the floor and I was picking it up and giving it to him. And then he looked at me and he went, oh, I can't be bothered with all this, he said. And he just grabbed all the powder up and he just swallowed it. And then he looked at me and he went, oh, that was vile. So he had a drink and then I said to him, he sat in a chair, but his movements were a bit rocky. So I said, look, let's lay down. So we laid down together. We talked about his life and we just both went to sleep. And then it was about three or four hours later when I woke up and I looked at him and I'd been a first aider and I knew he'd nearly gone. His face was really deathly white. Um, his lips were bright blue and he only took a breath now and again. Um, and I just couldn't stand it any longer. I just thought, 
this has got to end, so I just picked up the pillow and I put it over his face. And it wasn't for long, it was only a very short time. And when I took it off, he didn't breathe again and I sat there with him. I sat there with him for about half an hour and then I called the police. I had no idea that his friends had got that for him. I thought we were going out for his birthday. But it didn't take long to adjust to the thought of it because he wanted it so desperately. And he was really happy about it. He said to me, this really is a happy birthday. Um, and he said to me, if you call anybody, I'll never speak to you again. And I said to him, if this works, you'll never speak to me again anyway. And we actually sort of, we hugged each other and we both laughed. Um, because it, it just seemed so right. It was right for him. Well, when the police arrived, I just said he'd taken an overdose of heroin. And um, they took me to the police station and interviewed me um, for quite a few hours, actually. And I never told them I'd put the pillow over the face at that point. I came home and I had to go back after the weekend. And I couldn't keep it inside what I had done because it was such a big thing. So I told them everything that I'd put the pillow over his face. I told them everything. Um, so first of all, I was on a charge of murder. And then that was dropped to aiding and abetting a suicide, which I was quite happy to plead guilty to because that was what I did. I helped Aidan about a suicide. I helped Nigel to achieve what he wanted. And it was fortunate for me that his post-mortem autopsy revealed that what I did with the pillar didn't make any difference because he was practically dead anyway, which for me was a really big thing. I was, um, and it also saved me from prison, I suppose. I can't explain to you my state of mind at the time. I'd had a few years of him keep saying he wanted to die and trying to find a way, and we were discussing it. And I knew it would come to it, but I just wanted to be there with him, not to actually do it. Um, but at the end of that time, when it all happened, I just felt... He can't fail. It's got, it's got to happen. And just to see him lying there, um, I just thought it's got to end. Heather was tried for aiding and abetting Nigel's suicide at the Old Bailey. The judge conditionally discharged her for one year, citing exceptional circumstances. I had five children. Um, the eldest son... He's actually had the test now and he hasn't got the gene. Then I had Phil uh, Nigel and Philip and then the two girls. Nigel was 42 when he died. Philip was 50 when he died. He went full length of the disease. Philip actually starved to death because he could no longer swallow. Didn't want to be peg fed and it took him, I suppose, about six, seven days to die. 
we never told Philip about Nigel. We didn't want to upset him. What was really strange was on the day of Nigel's funeral, Philip suddenly walked up and punched a glass hole in, in um, internal doors, the glass. He, he suddenly punched through the glass. He didn't know why he'd done it. He couldn't give a reason why he'd done it. And the nurses didn't know why he did it. We just felt that was really weird that he'd done it on that day. He'd never done anything like it before or after. Just felt that was a bit weird, actually, um, as if he was marking the day. But. So, no, we never told him. We didn't think it was in his... Well, we didn't think um, it would do any good anyway. But Philip, see, he was entirely different. You could wait on Philip hand and foot and he loved it, whereas Nigel wouldn't let you do anything for him. When it got to the stage where he had to be shaved and uh, he just hated it that the nurses were shaving him and he couldn't do it himself and that wasn't... That wasn't what he wanted. Their father died early of a heart attack because not knowing what it was, he had a lot of wrong treatment. He had electrical shocks given to him um, and other wrong treatment which he should never have had. Kenneth, Ken. One of my friends from school used to belong to the Methodist Youth Club and I started going there with her and I met him there and we, we just got on really well. He was living with his brother because his mother had remarried and moved down to Portsmouth. And I'd never really got on with my mum. And he'd had, obviously had a very troubled childhood with his mum because she wasn't an easy person. And he'd seen his father try to commit suicide a few times. Um, and I wasn't, I loved my dad, but I wasn't all that happy at home. So we sort of bonded in a way and um, decided we'd like to get married and have our own family, which we did. We didn't know that he had this disease. His mother hid it. She said her husband had died because um, he had a nervous breakdown because of the war. So he was in, um, they called it mental hospitals now. Um, and that's what it was. But years later, when someone was doing our family tree for us, I was contacted by a chap um, in New Zealand, Canada, Canada. And he said, um, well, she did know about it because her husband was my mother's brother and we knew my mother had it and we wrote and told her and it was only two years before she died. Um, and she just said, never contact me again, never contact my children, you're lying. But when we, my solicitor got papers going back from that time and the doctor had written on it, Huntington's disease, family not to be told. And I thought that was the doctor's decision. But later on I realised, obviously, it was her decision that she didn't want them told. In a way, I can understand that because my children have had to grow up knowing what could be in front of them, making the decision that they shouldn't really have children, 
uh, to pass it on because it is a dreadful disease and it takes 25 years to kill you so it's a long long process um, and they had to grow up knowing that that could be theirs. I wondered if Heather and her first husband had known he had Huntingdon's would they have done anything differently? We probably wouldn't have had children, but then how can I say that I would want to be without them? So I don't have any regrets about what I did because it was his wish. He did not want to endure the last years of that disease, just laying in bed looking at a ceiling, unable to walk, talk, eat properly, um, that was never Nigel, he would never have done that. And I'm pleased he never went under a train or had a violent death. Um, so the only thing I regret really is that he never had the chance to have a full life. But I think what he did was right for himself. And I think I was right to stay with him and help him because he didn't want to die alone. You see, it's so difficult to find an easy way to die if you haven't got proper medical help. And I think it, Nigel would have loved everyone to be with him. He would have liked to say goodbye to everybody. But that wasn't possible. As with so many of these interviews, the things Heather regretted weren't the most obvious. It wasn't how she felt compelled to help her son. It was another related choice she had to make years before. I couldn't manage five children and my husband. He had it quite bad mentally, actually. And he went into a psychiatric hospital. But his one wish was to come home and I just couldn't accommodate him at home. So, you know, you get feelings of guilt afterwards that you never looked after him properly. But at that time, it just wasn't feasible. And he he was really upset at not being able to live at home. I mean, that is a deep regret of mine, actually. But I know that I couldn't have managed him and I couldn't have managed the children. Um, that wouldn't have worked anyway. But you still regret it. You still feel guilty about it. He used to get very upset at not being allowed to come. He used to come home and visit, but then when it was time for him to go, a lot of the times I had to call the police, and he didn't like that. But he wasn't the sort of person that... He was a lovely man. He wasn't the sort of person that would hold it with you. But obviously, Huntington's disease changed him, and he could be quite belligerent and slightly aggressive. But that wasn't his normal behaviour. Um, and there was one day when the hospital tried to stop him from coming, they took away his shoes and his clothes. And he walked from Goodmay's Hospital all the way nearly to Ronio Corner in Romford with no shoes on his feet, just a dressing gown. And it was snowy weather before anybody got him stopped by the police. But um, his one desire was to be at home and I was thwarting that, really, which 
but I know that I couldn't have managed him. So, no, I just had to let it go. Heather Bratton is now a patron at Dignity in Dying, a not-for-profit organisation that campaigns for an assisted dying law in the UK, allowing terminally ill people some choice about how and when they die. She wants to help others avoid having to face the same agonising decisions she's been forced to face. As I left, Heather gave me a little bag of toys. She remembered that it was my daughter's seventh birthday that weekend. Personally, I think the world could do with a few more Heathers in it. You've been listening to Regrets of the Dying. If you've liked this programme, then please subscribe and rate it on iTunes or the Acast app. The more positive reviews we get, the easier it will be for other people to find us. Next time. I stopped for a moment to stand, and then I heard her scream again. That's when I knew something was wrong. This was a proper podcast with support from Acast. Goodbye, and thanks for joining me.